Good day, one and all. Thanks for checking in. Dwight and Cirque talking black and gold. And something we've done in one form or another since 1996. Steve Cirque, Dwight Burgess, going to have some fun. We're going to look back at uh, opening weekend and a little treat, a reflection back 24 years to the second game of the season against the, may they rest in peace, Tampa Bay Mutiny and the man with the locks, Carlos Valderrama. Good day to you, sir. How are you? Doing great. Very very excited to start this new venture with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. And and, uh, while we appreciate everybody giving us a shot on this first time around, what we hope to develop in this program is while well, keeping up with the latest of Columbus Crew SC is is to have uh, a look back, you know, a historical perspective, add in some pieces of the puzzle that the newer crew fans maybe not uh, not already aware of, and, and also have our guests. You know, I mean, Pete Edwards, team owner, is banging down the door, wants to be a part of this. Duncan Outen wants to be a part <laughs> of this. Dante Washington wants to be a part of this. So the line is forming, Steve, and we'll consider what our options are and who we really want to bring into this program yeah I mean, that's true i i i saw dr pete on saturday and he came up to me he's like hey i heard you're doing something with dwight he's like let me know i want to be a guest so <laughs> i figured i was like wow okay we haven't even done anything yet and that, that's a pretty exciting development so that bodes well i it, hope and i like boating you don't get enough boating so in this case when it bodes well <laughs> that's a positive is it not i, think I would is. think so yes sir so opening day, New York City comes in. This is a, a team, uh, the blue and white, that uh, the league expects a lot of. I think there's also optimism around Columbus, but it's just such a different roster than this time a year ago. The, you, can, you can have talent, you can have experience, but you don't yet have talented experience collectively in this particular group. So um, I, I think the, uh, the jury will remain out for some time as, as to where this club is. Injuries, of course, can always have a dramatic part in it. The first six weeks of, of uh, 2019 were just gangbusters for the black and gold, uh, and then things changed. So if they stay healthy, there's every reason to believe that they're going to be a successful team over the course of the season. But how about New York City? When they got the early red card, which is, to me, Steve, that was the literal interpretation of the law. I'd, I'd love to see a bit more flexibility there. Um, but nonetheless, the, the card was issued, and it seemed like City very quickly kind of lost interest in the game. What did you see? Uh, well, I would like to uh, come at you with, with one thing you said there. If, if it were my team that got the red card, I would like to see a little bit more flexibility there. <laughs> Since it was the other team, I am perfectly fine with adhering to the letter of the law. Okay. And I would, I would much rather the crew be playing up a man uh, than, uh, than, than 11 on 11. Although, I mean, it does kind of, uh, you know, you, you've got this exciting matchup, you know, for opening day with these two teams and all that pretty much goes out the window three minutes into the game. Um, cause now it's a, it's a different game than both teams had prepared for all week long. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you make a very fair point. And, and in the end, yes, if, if one team's going to have the advantage and it's the team for which you're rooting, <laughs> I think, <laughs> that 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 is a good situation. Um, and look, it's not it's not the it's not the fall of the Columbus Crew that the decision was made. But bottom line is the decision was made, and for whatever reason or reasons, New York City seemed to to lose a certain amount of enthusiasm for the match, which was disappointing, I think, because of the timing more than anything else. But there was still a game to be played. There was a game to be won, and that's what uh, 
the black and gold did. They went out to win a game, and, and, and they did so. They found a way to win, and uh, we heard Caleb Porter talking after the match about, you know, you'd like to get that second goal sort of a thing, which has been a habit, I want to say, for this team, but it's not really fair to go back too much to last year because the roster's so different. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, to me, that was kind of the biggest thing I was watching at the end. Well, you know, Caleb you know, pointed out sometimes, you know, some games last year, they they don't even get a goal in the situation. So they got the goal, uh, thanks to Lucas. Um, but then the other thing I think everybody in the stadium was kind of hanging on was, are they going to hang on to this lead? You know, wh- whether they get a second goal or not, you know, second goal, obviously, you know, would kind of put it away. But, you know, if they don't get that second goal, are they going to hang on to it? I mean, last year, you know, there were seven different times that the, the crew dropped points from the 75th minute on. And they ended up dropping a total of 11 points. Four of those games were at home. Um, so, you know, I think that was probably a, a lot of thing, a thing on a lot of people's minds, you know, whether it's fans or, you know, maybe even, you know, the players themselves. Um, and so to be able to see out the game, you know, I mean, even if it wasn't flawless, to be able to see out the game, lock up those points, um, I think that that was kind of a, a big boost. Um and actually, and here's here's a clip. Of, I asked Eloy Room about that after the game, and here, here's what he had to say. Yeah, really, really glad uh, with the result, especially the three, three, three points. But uh, yeah, the clean sheet for me and the defense is important. And uh, last season we had also some good games, and then uh, we made some silly mistakes at the end, and then we didn't keep the clean sheet. But uh, today we kept the clean sheet, so I think this is really important. And uh, I try to, to to keep the same focus as last season, and uh, yeah, we have to do the same every game. So Eloy Room, a guy that uh, I think is very comfortable in Columbus colors, seems to be a guy that the fans really enjoy having and could be the next step in what has been a pretty decent line of goalkeeping historically for Columbus. Yeah, I mean, this this has been an organization that's produced a lot of of great goalkeepers, you know, whether produced or employed or however you want to look at it. But, you know, going all the way back to Brad Friedel back in 1996 to, you know, Zach Steffen as recently as last year and, and all the goalkeepers in between, um, and, and room name for himself, you know, kind of put himself on a lot of American fans radar last summer. Um, and then, you know, the crew made what appears to be a very astute pickup in, uh, in bringing him in. So you look at some of the numbers over the course of that game, uh, doubled up on shots to the advantage of the home team. You know, no surprise, consist- consistency there. So 6 of 14 on target for Columbus, 3 of 7 for City. So those are quite literally double of one another. Um, you know, possession decidedly to the crew, but that was forced by playing a man down for so long. Uh, Columbus uh, closer to 90% in their pass completion than 80%. I think that's a pretty impressive number. They uh, dramatically took the advantage in duels, uh, one more tackles. I mean, I think statistically it points to a win, but I think the stats are also, in this case, a, a sport soccer that's not necessarily always uh, really told well by the numbers. Nonetheless, you could see up and down those, those key stat categories that this was a dominating effort, though we got to put the asterisks, I think, up there to say that possession, 50-50 balls, particularly in the mid-third, those were simply not commitments that City was going to make a man down. No, and, and I, you talk about soccer. I mean, you, you can look at all, all those stats, and I'm sure they're very important. And, you know, as, as Caleb Porter and his staff break down the film, they're probably looking at a million different things, you know, that lead to those stats. But it's still ultimately a game decided by a moment of brilliance. You know, it's a one nothing game. 
And it's it's one moment of brilliance from Lucas Elrion that uh, you know provided the difference. And here's what Caleb had to say about Lucas's performance in his crew debut. I mean, I've been telling you guys, he's a special player. I've seen it every day. Um, he's a difference maker, and that's why we brought him here. You know, you need uh, difference makers in your team. Uh, of course, you know we need to be good as a group. Um, but there's not a good team in the world that doesn't have difference makers individually that can pull off plays, and, and that's what he brings. Um, I thought he was active all night. He got in good spots. We didn't find him enough in the first half. Um, part of that is just the chemistry, continuing to build and understanding that you can play him in really hard spots uh, in between the lines. Uh, and he, when he gets in there, he's really clever. Um, he knows how to w work himself out of those spots and then create chances. And I thought he showed that on, on the day and, you know, it was a big reason we won the game. Unbelievable goal as well. Well, he's a guy that's got an awful lot riding on his shoulders, Steve, no question about it. So four yellow cards over the course of 90 minutes, that's, that's a little bit to the high side, I think. Any concern to your mind, um, obviously that Pedro Santos would pick up one is not a surprise, but you got a, you know, Vito and Harrison, two of your defenders, got booked. Artur, in his position, in his role, he is certainly going to uh, pick up some yellow cards. But is that is that one of the the uh, uh, less exciting pieces of the game? Is that something to keep an eye on? Is this a team that's going to be getting three, four yellows every match? Because that is a stat that could come back to haunt you down the road. I mean, it is, but it's also, you know, it's opening day. It's Christmas. You're at home. There's a lot going on. I, you know, I think it's just a, an, an emotional game, uh, just in general. You know, a lot, a lot of juice is flowing. It's a, it's the first time you're playing for actual points. You know, instead of preseason games or closed door scrimmages or you know whatever you've been doing, uh, you know, just training camp and scrimmaging amongst yourselves and things like that. So, I mean, it's it's one game. I'm not too particularly uh, uh, concerned in that regard. Um, uh, you know, hey, it's, it's just opening day. You're excited. You might, we might get a little, little rambunctious. Well, on the positive side, you look at the heat maps from that game and uh, the number of successfully completed passes. And in some respects, it's very Greg Berhalter of a team that is not Greg Berhalter's team. But, you know, when he puts such a, a high value on possession – um, and, and the way they move the ball. But not only are they were successful, we talked about that, the distribution in the heat map, and that is how plays distributed over the course of the game. It's predominantly from the back half of the mid-third forward. A little bit more to the left side than to the right. That probably has a bit to do with the natural movement of Pedro Santos. But on balance, that's what this was. This was a balanced display by Columbus, who possessed and moved the ball very quickly and dominated stretches of the game, albeit a little bit left-handed by comparison. But nonetheless, I think it was pretty pretty well done on their part to use the entirety of that Columbus crew pitch. Well, I think the craziest thing, and I, I didn't realize this um, in terms of a statistical fact at the time, but in the post-game press conference, uh, Patrick Woodland of MassiveReport.com pointed out that through the 75th minute, Darlington Nagby was still at 100% on his passing. Um, and, uh, I mean, that, that's just crazy at any level playing a man up, whatever you want to say. I mean, that's to not miss a single pass. Um, and, and here was Caleb Porter's reaction, uh, 
to Darlington Agby's performance in his crew debut? I think what you saw is what you're going to see. You know, even just I had to almost laugh. At, he didn't give a pass away for 75 minutes. I mean, <laughs> to, for a player to go through a game and not give a pass away for 75 pin- minutes is uh, is unbelievable. I mean, that's what he brings. He's a possession uh, midfielder. He's the link player. He's the guy that everything's going to go through in the midfield, and he'll run the show, and he'll be on the ball more than anybody, and um, he'll help us keep rhythm and tempo. Um, you know, in a game like this, we're going to have all the ball. Uh, he, he's he's going to be key. So that's his game. He's going to find passes. He's going to switch plays. He's going to play through the lines. And, he, and he's going to win a lot of balls, too. You just saw late in the game, he was tracking back. And he's just a, a modern midfielder. And, and honestly, I don't think there's a better guy in the league at what he does. And, uh, and I would say he's, he was a massive part of us winning today as well. And just to highlight your point prior to the comments, he only finished the game with three unsuccessful passes. So uh, when you got a deep-line midfielder who's in the transition, that box-to-box guy, he knows he's got some cover with Artur. Uh, yeah, very successful outing for Darlington Nagby. Yeah, and, and Artur, I asked Artur what it was like. You know, This was his first game. Obviously, he'd, he'd played uh, many years with Will Trapp, and, and now he, he finds himself you know, playing alongside another MLS stalwart in Nagby. So I asked Artur um, what it was like to, to pair with Nagby. Oh, it's, it's very good, man. We start to understand each other even more every every game. And uh, he's a very good player. Like, can keep the ball very well and uh, the movement, the positioning. And uh, I think we, we have a chemistry. We work well together. And uh, yeah, it's very good to play with him. So Artur, and uh, it could be you'll harken back when he and Will Trapp really found their rhythm, and perhaps that's going to be the new combination. How about the return of Milton Valenzuela? I was rather outspoken about it and still to this day believe it's true, but back in 2018, over the course of the season, I thought the uh, awful Valenzuela right-back, left-back pairing, particularly from an attacking perspective, was the best in the league. It was a significant loss when he went down prior to the start of the 19 campaign. Then obviously Harrison Awful with the broken jaw missed some time as well. Um, but I thought Milton Valenzuela, given the fact that he hadn't played competitively on a consistent basis for the better part of a year, uh, pretty good return to the show. You wouldn't even have known that he missed a year. Um, he, he looked pretty much just like the, the Milton Valenzuela we saw in, in 2018. And that and was... These these kind of situations are always interesting. You know, you talk about the new players, like you bring in an Agby, you bring in a Zellerion. Um, but then you also get a player like Milton Valenzuela back. It, it's almost like getting a new player, you know, compared to, to last year. Um, and you just plug him, you know, right right back in there. And, and I, I thought he looked terrific in his first game back. Well, I agree with you, and and the one uh, note I would mention, we just talked about Darlington Nagby and the fact that he only had three turnovers, uh, you know, unforced turnovers the entire game. Uh, There were nine giveaways on the part of Valenzuela, and that's not a big deal considering how often he gets forward. Uh, They were a little bit more left-handed than right-handed. But if you wanted to point to anything, you could look at those, you know, nine, ten giveaways that he had over 90 minutes, um, and, and six of them, uh, we're in the back half of the field, 
And you know, that's that's a little bit concerning to me. Uh, you could understand, particularly if he's going a little bit deeper into the attack with his passes. Um, but uh, there were six times when he had the ball in the short half of the field and gave the way gave away the ball in the defensive portion of the park, and that could lead a team that is playing to get to gold that has act- attacking talent. Think of an an LAFC as an example. Um, those are the kinds of teams that could take advantage of some of that. Well, that's you paying more attention to the game than I I was. I, I was more <laughs> focused on him whipping in some nice. <laughs> some nice balls on the, on the offensive end um but but yeah obviously you don't want to turn the ball over in your other half but i guess maybe those you know a, a few days later those aren't so lodged in my mind as sure as instead i was watching him you know especially in the first half when pedro was out on the right side um you know watching him ping those crosses you know yeah to, to pedro um well, i don't those, think there's any question that he he did his job and yeah if you look at the successful passes steve he's uh, he's got a bucket full of them, so not to uh, not to overplay it, but I do think it's something to keep an eye on. It's just one game. Yeah, and it's, I mean, again, first game since 2018, so I'm sure there's a little bit of rust to, to shake off, but it was certainly great to see him out there. So how about Jossie Zardes? Just, you know, just didn't see uh, a ton of the ball. Um, you know, he uh, when he did, he, he, he did well. Majority, like Darlington Nagby, the majority of the balls he played were successfully completed passes. But just in general touches, um, didn't see a ton of the ball. And for him, the majority of them originated in the mid-third. So we know that Jossie does the work, and he comes back and he helps out defensively. He'll do some chasing. Uh, at the same time, if he's the guy that's playing forward passes you know, in, in the mid-third of the field, he's not up there to receive them. He's quick, but I'm not sure he's that fast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if that just comes down to the, you know, the type of game it, it turned out to be. Um, I don't know. I guess I really don't have a lot to add to that. Fair enough. That was he's not the best color man in the game for nothing. That's right. Hey, look, um, we all look at different things and uh, something, you know, and, and that's kind of what we're doing here is is our conversations are at times really about the meat and potatoes of the game, but also trying to offer our perspective, which comes, you know, from a different place when I'm doing the broadcast of the game and, and I'm focused on certain things and I've got replays and that kind of stuff. Um, so when you're watching um, and you don't have in-game responsibilities, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective. And then obviously as a coach, you know, some of these things that I look for, and, and while I'm not a huge stat guy, I do like tendencies. I like the heat map very much because that just shows you where the ball was most of the time. Um, and, and you can see if you're, you're properly balanced in your attack or if, you're, if, you're, if the guys you want to have the ball in the attack are consistently getting the ball in the right places. Um, and I do think the, the pass completion rate, I, I do think there's some merit to that. Less the number and more about the location of the field. So if it's Valenzuela giving away, you know, a half dozen balls in the back half, I don't think that's a huge thing, but I think it's something to keep an eye on. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we, we look at the game a little bit differently. So, so basically, I just need to study more no. before we do these. You, you got to keep, you gotta keep <laughs> being the Cirque man. You got your part. I'll take care of my part. They call that blending. Uh, uh, look, uh, all things considered, for March 1st, the sun was shining. Temperatures in the 40s, which is probably right on par, so we don't have to worry about precipitation. There was a little bit of a breeze, but uh, 17,473 was uh, the attendance. Great number. A lot of excitement a, about this team. Yeah, it was it was a great 
great afternoon, a great Christmas, and you know, I think, well, apart from one other thing we'll get to in a minute, I, I think my takeaway is still just going to be uh, Lucas Elrion scoring that incredible goal. Uh, you know, I, I think when it happened, I, I sent out the tweet like the dust off the Jack Edwards. That's why he, he's here. Yeah, yeah. You know, call because uh, that's exactly why we brought him here. Um, before we move on to other subjects, I, I did ask our tour or, you know, I did get comments from Artur and Jossie's artists about Lucas's debut, and here's what they had to say. <laughs> that was amazing, huh? He, he, had, he does this trick sometimes. Like the, it's just uh, you cannot know what he's going to do and, uh, with his weak foot. I don't know if it is weak anymore. Right. Yeah, but uh, it was an amazing goal. Yeah, I thought uh, Luca had a phenomenal game today. You know, um, he got on the ball a lot, which we need uh, from our 10. You know, because when he touched the ball a lot in attacking positions, he's so dangerous. And um, on his goal, you know, I, I saw him try to take a, a touch past the defender, and I think it bobbled, but then he put it on his left, and I just watched the ball go up for 90. It was amazing. All righty, so Artur, Zardes, having a chance to hear what they thought, of course, earlier in the program, uh, some of Caleb Porter's reaction to the game. Um, you can't ask for anything better, right? You only get to play 34 regular season games. And that was the season opener. It happened to be at home, and it netted the full three points, no serious injuries, uh, and, and now it's on to, on to game two. Yeah, and um, oh, the other thing I had to laugh about, so Lucas scored that goal, so uh, well, I guess I have to plug something here since I'm going to mention it, but uh, you know, this past fall, my, my new book, A Massive Collection, Volume 1, came out, and in it, I had this chart about players who scored in their competitive debut for Columbus. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was on page 94, but I, you know, I had all the goals, you know, the players who scored their competitive debut. And the uh, that page of the book immediately went out of date with the very first game yeah. played after the the book's publication. Um, but Lucas now uh, adds his name to a, a list of players, you know, that include. You know, whether you go back to the very first game from Brian McBride, um, some other notable names here, Thomas Dooley, Ante Razov, Kai Kamara, uh, Stephen Lenhart, um, most recently to do it. And again, this was all competitions, including Open Cup. Uh, but the most recent person to do it was Romario Williams last year um, with a late goal to tie Chicago. Um, but I just had to laugh. I was like, wow, that, the book made it one game. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And they Lucas, call it, Lucas already made it out of date. They call it an appendix. <laughs> right. Um, uh, well, it's, it's you know, you didn't know I was going to say this, but it's a great read. I mean, you've done some books, great reads, particularly for crew fans, but beyond that, for, for fans of professional sport and characters and in history of, of the game. And, uh, you know, we're going to be looking to uh, help bring those to life um as we move through this uh, 2020 season um and uh it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves but yes there has been uh, as you just laid out there's been a real history of crew players attacking players in particular in their debut uh having dramatic uh, impact on the game and um you can't get much more dramatic than scoring the the game winner yeah it was uh it was a uh perfect debut really i mean you can't you know with someone with that much expectation and then i know he's kind of downplayed it but i mean he is literally following in the footsteps of scoloto and Iguain. yep 
is kind of you know it's just kind of this lineage now I mean, we talked about goalkeepers a little while ago and how the crew have a great lineage of that and now you know for the past 13 years or something we've had this this lineage of great argentine playmakers um, from Scoloto to Iguain and now Zellerayan. And, and I know he's kind of downplayed and said, Hey, I'm, I'm just here to be me and to help the team. Um, but, but to do that in his debut, you know, what an entrance. It's the, it's the best possible of all entrances that you can have. It is. Um, but, uh, you know, to shift gears a little bit, okay. there, there was, kind of, there was, there was kind of the opposite of an entrance. Yes. Uh, before the game, and uh, I, I thought it'd be neat to kind of talk to you about this. Um, you know, as as we all know, you, you had stepped down as as the voice of the crew after 24 seasons uh, prior to the season. Uh, you know, for health concerns and and time constraints and and things of that nature. Uh, but the crew organization did a wonderful thing, I thought, on on uh, Sunday, and they honored you. Before the game, uh, and had you out on the field, they, they you know, Dr. Pete Edwards and, and Tim Bezvichenko presented you with a jersey, a number twenty-four jersey, to, to celebrate your twenty-four seasons in the booth. Um, and I, I just, you know, thought maybe we need to kind of talk about that and, and what that was like for you. I mean, I imagine it was hard to be at, to be at a game not in the booth, but uh, you know, what was it like? You know, to get up in the morning and and, and know that this was going to happen, and, and you come to the stadium and and, uh, you know, how it all went down. You were there with your wife, Julie, and, and your daughter, Kristen, was with you. Um, I guess maybe kind of walk us through the, through your, the day leading up to that, that moment. Well, you're, you're certainly correct. Um, a very difficult day, um, a very unusual day, because it was, as a middle-aged adult, to have a completely foreign experience <laughs> You know, my first time being in that situation. Um, but Tim, I liked <laughs> to interrupt you. I like what I went with Tim Miller uh, to to meet with you, and I, I love when you showed up. And you were, I think, you were maybe a couple minutes late. And you were like, "I don't, I don't know how any of this works. I've, I've never been down here during a game. I don't know where I'm going." <laughs> now, first of all, so yeah, very much a fish out of water. First of all, I was not late. Uh, oh, okay. I, I was very cognizant of the time, but to okay, your, well, maybe, to your maybe, point, maybe it's just. Maybe we were just early. There you go. Um, Tim, is, Tim is a punctual man, so yes. we, we, were, we were on time. We were early. And, and being on time is being early, 100%. Um, you know, Tim Miller, Tim Bezbachenko, Pete Edwards. Um, you know, Friday night, the, uh, the Friday night prior to the game at uh, Kosai downtown, um, and there was a recognition there, uh, which was very thoughtful. Um, then the ceremony before the game, um, yeah, my wife and my daughter were there, my sister, her husband, my brother. Um, the, the crew made it sure that my family was very much a part of the ceremony. So honestly, Steve, right now there's only so much I can say about it because it's still very raw. It's still very emotional for me. I'm incredibly proud of the 24 years. Um, I made the best decision for me and my family in the time. Um, I think most of us at one stage or another of our lives find that, that we have to make some choices that wouldn't necessarily be what we would like. Um, but um, doing the right thing is never wrong. And the right thing was for me to take a step back and build in some more time. As I said in, in my announcement um, 
you know, it's not a full-time job. So you have a job. In my case, it's predominantly during the history of Columbus Crew. I've been as a college soccer coach, Capital University, and, and now more recently at Wittenberg. Um, but you have your regular job responsibilities, and then upwards of 35 to 40 weekends a year you're still working. And that includes getting to a Thursday or Friday training session as much as possible. Um, you know, over the years we've done weekly radio shows. So there's a level of commitment for this. Um, that when added into the normal day-to-day things that each of us deals with as an adult, as a husband, as a father, as a son, a sibling, a friend. Um, but I really need more downtime, and um, there, there just wasn't an, another outlet for that. So, you know, stepping away, but it was made very clear uh, that um, they want me to continue to be part of a family and, you know, down the road, you know, potentially a USL team coming in. Um, we'll see what happens on the broadcast side with that, a little bit different style of commitment potentially. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're going to take it one step at a time. But for 2020, the focus is having time off, having free weekends, reintroducing myself to my wife, who for 24 years has not had a husband a lot, which for her was like the golden ticket. I think we all I was get say that's that. probably probably a blessing. Yes, but um, being down on the field <laughs> as the players come out and, and thinking about uh, what I would have been doing over the prior 24 years in those moments, you know, preparing for the kickoff and the broadcast and all the pieces we're doing. Greg Bartram, who's been taking the pictures among the photogs of the crew since 1996, took a wonderful shot. I knew nothing about it. He presented it to me later, but myself, Pete Edwards, Tim Bezbachenko around the framed jersey. And in the reflection, the lower half of the glass, the reflection is of the broadcast booth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Send that to me. I, I will. And that's the kind of thing that makes your <laughs> you makes your, your knees weak um, and, and the tears come, and they did. Uh, and you're trying to hold it together for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and then they asked me to do the coin toss, which I'll never forget. First of all, it wasn't a coin. It was some sort of metal disc thing. That was very lightweight. And while, isn't, a, isn't a coin a metal disc? Uh, it's not metal, no. It's whatever the coin is made out of. <laughs> okay, so, so you, you, this you do was, the coin toss. And, this, and was I, not, I... this was not legal tender. Okay, okay, fine. It won't work in a vending machine. <laughs> Got it. No, it won't. But but when you went out for the coin toss, I told you not to screw it up, and then you and I didn't. proceeded to go out. You, you, but you did something weird. Uh, well, I, you know, Mother Nature. So we go out, and they give me the coin, so I'm looking, this thing doesn't weigh anything. So I'm like, well, how are you going to flip this? But anyway, so I just took it, and I flipped it, and it flipped properly, but it blew in the breeze. And then it hit the, hit the game ball on the ground on its way and flipped over and then finally came to rest on one side, and Columbus won the coin flip. So I cleverly anticipated the wind, the angle thereof, in order to get it to deflect off to the ball to ensure that the home team would win the coin toss. How about that? Sounds like sounds like you did a very you did a lot of calculations. Yeah. Well, and you know me in math, right? Right. right. Um, uh, well, another question. So this coin thing, what what's does it have? So what's the heads and the tails? Does it have what's it got on it? You know, it, I've it, never, it, it was. I like a, they used like a quarter or something. Yeah. No, I did too. Or you know, a, a, 
50 cent piece or something. But um, I think it was probably personal to the referee, to be honest with you. Um, And it had different colors. So, I mean, there were clearly two different sides to it. I guess I should just say my expectation was it was going to actually be a coin, a head and and a tail, you know, and you're going to see somebody's face or their profile anyway. Um, But it wasn't. And, And again, my guess is it's probably a personal piece that the referee uses. Um, and it was just lightweight. It was, it, you know, it wasn't any different than the size of a coin really, but it was just much lighter. Um, didn't have any heft to it. It lacked heft. Yes. Yeah. It was not big well, on heft or girth. Well, and then here's the other thing. If it didn't have a head, how do you call it? Like, do you say like, well, like what was on it? Like, how do you call if it's not heads or tails? Well, it, it was heads and tails. And he pointed out on one. He said, this is the heads. And it had one thing on. It was kind of this bluish color oh, okay. to it. And the other side was was different. Neither of the players in the coin toss seemed to have a problem with it. It was probably just all me and built into the moment. It just, you know, it wasn't what I expected. You have somebody standing there and they're looking at their watch because they're keeping everything moving because they got to get the, they got to keep everything on time for the commercial breaks. You know, you know, all that stuff goes, Um, but it was nice. I've never had a chance to do that before. And so we did the coin toss and then a picture was taken with the officiating crew and the team captains. and, And I got to be a part of that. So, um, you know, just something a little bit extra special to, to add. And now um, I get to watch as a fan. Uh, I do watch some things or I, I rewatch some things as a coach. And you're always trying to learn and, and grow in your knowledge of the game. But um, it, was, uh, it, it, it was a great day. And I'm truly thankful for um, what the crew organization you know, did on my behalf. And uh, I'm glad that part of it's in the rear view because the buildup to it was increasingly emotional. Um, and now I can get a little bit of separation. Maybe Steve, that's the best way to say it Mm -hmm. is, is just get a little separation from the day to day connection that I've had for, you know, more than two decades, uh, and, and just enjoy for a while being a fan, knowing that in the back of my mind, things change and, you know, who knows, uh, like Tom Brady said, who knows what the future holds. Yeah. And I, I think two other little moments that popped into my head when, when Josh Williams came out, um, you know, to head to the bench before the start of the game, he he was quick to come over and, and mm-hmm. give you a hug. And uh, before you went out there for the, for the ceremony, or maybe it was the coin toss. I can't remember what order yeah. when they came out. Um, and then when you were out there, the other thing that, that struck me is when the uh, Nordeka started chanting, thank you, Dwight. And it started carrying around the stadium. I mean, yeah. what, what was that moment like to stand there and to hear these fans, uh, you know, chanting, thank you, Dwight. That, I mean, that had to be, that had to, kind of wallop you i would think oh yeah it's it's soul numbing to be honest yes it was great and um you know a couple of guys did come over and say hello you know andy greenenbaum had reached out to me i've had had telephone conversations with duncan out and jp della camera and glenn davis reached out to me and uh you know and on and on it goes so i i'm truly you know blessed in that respect but yeah when when a stadium full of people start chanting your name and, and in that moment are just showing you uh a measure of thanks and ultimately you know respect uh, and whatever I had left in my, my legs and my knees specifically was pretty much gone. If I hadn't had somebody to lean up against in that moment, I may have face planted right there in, in, on Montfrey <laughs> Field, uh, Montfrey Stadium Field. But, uh, you know, got with it. You know, it's, it was so much anticipation, the wait to get there. And then suddenly it was over. Um, and, uh, you know, watched some of the game and then, you know, went on home. Um, wasn't sure, just left that open, but, 
um, you know, the emotional piece once it was finished and then you really begin reflecting and taking in what had occurred. Um, and it was just better for me to, to withdraw. So I was able to get home and watch the rest of the game on uh, television live and then went back and watched a uh, replay of the little bit of a little bit of the game that I missed on the drive home, though I did have Chris Doran on the radio uh, during that 15 minutes or so, uh, you know, and got home and, and, and took it all in and, uh, you know, got ready for whatever's next. You know, one door closes and, and we'll see uh, the next one to open, hopefully not on my head, um, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're pointed in the, the forward direction now and mm-hmm. doing the show with you and, and the kinds of things that, that we're going to be able to do. Of course, tough trip coming up out to Seattle, though Columbus historically has had some success uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the J90 plus four. But one, yeah. of the greatest, one of the greatest moments of crew has. Oh, my goodness. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, gonna, in, enjoying how uh, that plays out. I'm actually going to be um, doing the play by play for the uh, UD basketball game on Saturday evening. It's a seven o'clock tip off. They they're 28 and two undefeated, trying to complete an undefeated Atlantic 10 season, get a 29th win. Uh, they're right on the margin of a number one or number two seed in the NCAA tournament. So. Um, get to do that through ESPN Plus, call the game, and then uh, we'll get home after the the Columbus-Seattle game. But I'll be able to see most of that game live back home. Um, so, you know, looking looking forward to that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, while, while we're talking about your broadcast career, we, we'll, we'll kind of just kind of do a, a high-level um, look back at your 24 years. Okay. Um uh, I figure that might be a little little fun to, to look back on while we're putting a bow on on this uh, whole thing with your ceremony and everything. But uh, how, how, tell me about how you got the crew job. I don't I don't know that I've I've heard this story before. So okay. you, how, how how did that ha- come about? Well, it, it, it's a very straightforward uh, process as it turned out. But you know, going all the way back, I I attended Centerville High School in suburban Dayton. Uh, of course, in Columbus, folks that are familiar with Central Ohio and the way it's set up, you. The larger the community, the more high schools you have. You know, Worthington has two high schools, and and you know Dublin has three. There are four in Olentangy. There are three in Westerville. So the larger the population in a community, uh, as com- as opposed to a high school that I went to with an enrollment of almost three thousand kids. Now it was a public school, but because of the size of the district, there were. Uh, ancillary opportunities. Now, these days you have the STEM program, which has a lot to do with the the engineering, the math piece, and and, and kind of preparing uh, our young people for a variety of different types of careers. But among the opportunities that was available in high school was they actually had a a low wattage um, radio station, uh, you know, a public radio, if you will, Uh, Mm non-commercial. But in that time and day, in order to be uh, an on-air broadcaster, uh, you needed to have um, a license issued by the FCC, and that had a lot to do with the way in which antennas and power were on it. So you, you needed to have a certain uh, level of understanding of, of the wattage and the power and the antennas because you had to take periodic readings and things like that. So this was a two-year program, junior, senior year, and incorporated a number of, of English credits to it but there was that math and science part and then there was also a communications marketing piece and there wasn't so much about teaching people how to be a disc jockey if you will but it was more about presenting the world of broadcast and incorporating other subject matters so that I would spend three hours a day 
uh, in that program, but the program involved lots of different things. So, for example, upon graduation from high school, didn't have problems getting admitted to institutions because I still had the fundamental Englishes and maths and sciences and, you know, the credits that Mm -hmm. you need for college admission. But part of that um, was uh, the sports part of it. And uh, Andy Kraling, who you know, uh, Mm -hmm. we played together through high school. He uh, chose Dartmouth College over Indiana University, played as a goalkeeper. He and I went to a developmental national team camp together. And um, uh, the first few years when we were primarily doing radio, uh, of crew games whenever we were in that part of the country he was always on the broadcast and that was great but he and I on Friday it was a very simple schedule on Friday nights we would broadcast the Centerville High School football games and then we played in the soccer games on Saturday night and then when the fall sports season ended transitioned into basketball so that's really kind of where it started for me I always had an interest in sports in general in the sports broadcasting piece respectively and that was my first real world experience that transitioned at the college level to doing some you know school sports and just sort of expanded from there and had the um had the soccer playing career um and and then the calendar turns and you start to get more in the videotaping and the broadcasting and and i just picked up some things here or there over a period of time a little bit of this a little bit of that a lot of football and basketball and then it was actually wright state university began to they were videotaping their games and they decided you know what let's add a broadcaster on it and i had some soccer background and some broadcasting background new greg andrula so that led and then there was in the old uh, npsl the National Professional Soccer League, which was the last indoor league, the National Indoor League, prior to the start of MLS. Well, there was a Dayton Dynamo. And um, they put out an ad, new ownership took over, and they were looking for someone. They wanted to add a, a broadcast piece, so I auditioned, ended up getting that job, did it for two years. Dynamo was sold to the uh, to Cincinnati, to the group that owned the hockey team at the time, and they were playing um, – as the Cincinnati Silverbacks. Mm -hmm. So um, in year, my third year of broadcasting the indoor game professionally, my first year in Cincinnati, well, that's when everything was announced about MLS. So I reached out to Adam Lowe, who was the the PR guy, Jamie Roots, the the club GM initially. He had worked on the 94 World Cup and parlayed his success with Columbus uh, into the NFL, went to Houston when they came back into the league after the Oilers left for Tennessee. Um, and, and I simply took some some uh, samples of the indoor because that's what I had and, you know, sent it along to Adam and it was reviewed in conjunction with the folks at the fan. And ultimately, you know, I got hired for the job and here we are, you know, 25 years later now talking about that. So um, I would say that there was a certain measure of experience and the fact that I had a soccer background helped. But, you know, Steve, nobody knew what soccer was outdoor soccer was really going to sound like on the radio Mm -hmm. um and one of the things that i'm really excited about that we're going to build into the show from time to time uh i do have some recordings from those early days i don't have every minute of every game but i have recordings from a number of the games um when mls first formed and we're going to have a chance as we enjoy the history and the future of this club all at the same time in fact second game of the season coming up at seattle well game two in 96 um, was against the Tampa Bay Mutiny. It was another home game. Everybody remembers mm-hmm. opening day, the 4-0 win. Dr. Kamano, the cross. Thor Lee knocks it in on the own goal. McBride has two, sets up Pete Marino. But game two of MLS for Columbus uh, was against the Tampa Bay Mutiny. Um, Carlos Valderrama was, was the main guy there back at the shoe. 24,434 folks were in attendance. 
Uh, Rich Grady was the referee. And Michael Kennedy, who went on to be a center for a number of years, was one of the ARs, you know, at that time. And it would be a game that ultimately Tampa would win. Uh, They got a goal early, 12th minute. uh, Martin Vasquez on an assist from Stevie Ralston to put the team to head, put the team ahead. And then uh, in minute 28, it was an own goal that made it 2-0. So it was 4-0 coming into the game. Columbus had yet to give up a goal, right? They, they shut out DC United. Well, not even on the half hour mark of that game too. Columbus at home in front of nearly 25,000 was suddenly down 2-0. But there's a little piece of history with that because if you go to the official match summary, the own goal goes to Pete Marino, but Steve Cirk, that's not true. It is not. And, uh, I've, I've, I've sent this in to hopefully get corrected at some point, like, you know, over the years, and it still hasn't been corrected, but it was actually Mark Watson um, who scored the own goal. I mean, I was at that game. I mean, I I remember it, but like Bo Shawnee came out of his goal a little bit. Watson was coming back for the ball and Watson passed it back toward the goal thinking that's where Bo was, but Bo was actually, you know, up probably near the edge of the 18. Mm -hmm. Um, So he knocked it right, right past him. Um, But yeah, the official, Elias record for whatever reason says Pete Marino. My only guess is maybe someone keyed in a 12, which was Pete's number instead of a 13, which was Mark Watson's number. Um, but uh, since you found this audio tape, I'm sure you have audio tape of it yes. uh, showing, showing that it was a Mark Watson thing uh, or a Mark Watson own goal. Um, so hopefully it's someday at some point, the official record will eventually get corrected uh, to, to reflect well, you you're correct. Mark Watson says Sticky Pete. You you are correct. It was Mark Watson. You are correct that we have the audio clip. So I will make sure that that gets sent to MLS so that they'll have uh, proof of what actually transpired. Um, but let's jump in our time machine, shall we? We'll go back to April twentieth of nineteen ninety six. And as I said, zero zero early on, but it's going to be Vasquez from Ralston in the twelfth minute. Uh, Martin Vasquez thought he had his line of sight set, went up and struck it, but right into the defensive line of Columbus. It's put back into play, shot, and it's an upper 90 at the far post. Tampa is on the board, and Bo Oshani can't believe it. So Tampa Bay is up 1-0 at the shoe. They would double that advantage just before the half hour on an own goal, officially credited to Pete Marino, but... As you're about to hear, such is not the case. McBride continues his run ahead, applies pressure, so the big Tampa goalkeeper will have to play it. Now we've got a back pass, and it's going to be an own goal. Well, that's what got Columbus on the board last Saturday night, and turnabout, as they say, is fair play. It was played in deep. Mark Watson turned to drop it to Bo O'Shaughnessy, but I don't think he looked before he played it. Bo was out of the net. The ball rolls into the unprotected goal. And with 7-20, to go in the opening half, it's now 2-0 Tampa. Into the second half, the game would go. Columbus now down in an 0-2 hole. Dr. Kamalo, just past the hour mark, would get his first official goal in the black and gold. Uh, he did score the first goal of the first game, but it was redirected into the back of the net by Thor Lee. But Dr. Kamalo has an opportunity, and with 30 minutes left in the game, you think, Columbus is back in it now, down 2-1. Bliss has it, tries to play it near side. Coyman dumps it, it's in the box. Dr. Kamado shoots and scores! 30-30 to go in the match. It's 2-1, Tampa Bay up. But on the night, that's not the way it would play out. 
Uh, start of the second half, for those who keep score at home, Brian Mazanoff uh, came into the game for Pete Marino. A late substitution um, would have Marcelo Carrera, who played in that aforementioned NPSL with the Canton Invaders. He would replace Brian Bliss. And then late in the game, uh, Tampa goalkeeper Mark Doherty would be booked for time-wasting, but it proved to be um, to his benefit because on the night, uh, Tampa Bay wins their second game, and Columbus suffers their first loss in league history. 2-1 the final score for the mutiny advantage. And there you go, a little bit of history. Yeah, I hearing these clips was was fun one i i think hearing the mark watson own goal you know it's kind of like me looking at the zapruder film or something um i'm pretty excited that we also have audio documentation so hopefully uh at long last the record books can be uh corrected in terms of that that own goal remove that stain from sneaky pete's legacy um and just hearing the excitement of the dr kamalo goal um you know, in, in, in your call and maybe, you know, so we look back as you look back at some of these, these broadcast tapes you have, I mean, what's the, you know, you, you've kind of evolved over the years, you know, you were, you were the radio guy and then you were the TV play by play guy. And then you moved on to, to be the analyst, but you know, from a broadcaster's perspective, what's it like doing a soccer game on the radio? Like what, how, how do you, and, and, and I loved listening to you on the radio, especially in the early days when all the games were on the TV, um, I would listen to your calls frequently and I, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, it just felt like you, know, you could feel the excitement, but you, you'd also have your funny little comments you'd have, uh, uh, but I could still follow the action. I mean, what's it like as a broadcaster trying to call a game as diverse and as expansive as soccer? Well, I think on, a couple of, I think a couple of things, Steve, first of all, just having done other sports over the years, um, and, and kind of considered myself as a play-by-play guy at that stage, uh, more than as a soccer guy. And, and obviously my career would go on to play out uh, to the soccer side of things. But um, understanding the nuance, I think, of just competitive athletics and, and, and then that associated particularly with the game. But the beauty of radio, it's very stereotypical, I suppose, but it is true, is painting the picture. So you had the opportunity and, and it's something that, you know, I had learned very early and, and always reminded myself that I'm providing eyes for all the fans who can't see the game. And so I needed, wanted, strove to give the most um, picturesque, if you will, most vivid accounting of what I was seeing in those early days, uh, you know, and, and your relationship with the guys was a little bit different and um, from time to time, there was a player or two that didn't like something that I, I had said, but I just always try to politely remind them that I'm not making up stuff. I'm simply saying what occurred um, and uh, kind of worked our way through that. But I think being respectful of that, painting the picture, remembering at all times, no matter what I'm seeing, all the listeners are seeing is what I tell them. So trying to fill that. Um, and I think radio, outdoor soccer and radio is very much of a play-by-play medium, whereas television is, I think, much more about the analyst because we're watching the game, we see a lot of things for ourselves, and we're looking for the analyst to, to kind of fill in the pieces that we don't necessarily see, the, the parts of the game that we're less familiar with. So uh, the passion, the excitement uh, was always real, sometimes in hindsight, listening back now a little bit over the top, but... You know, I was so excited about the league and loved the game so much and really had an appreciation for um, 
you know, what a goal means to a game. And, and in a sport where there aren't very many goals, uh, the buildup can be very, very exciting. The finish can be dramatic. So it was a combination of just having a love for the game, uh, a respect for the audience, and then ultimately my own understanding of the game and my own enthusiasm for the sport of soccer. And I just tried to be me, and I tried to be natural, and I'm so grateful that it connected, you know, with so many people. Uh, and then over time, you know, it changed. Play-by-play on television, as I alluded to, you want to give the analyst as much opportunity, so you try not to call every touch of the ball. You want to let the game breathe a little bit, particularly in a sport like soccer where it, the ball can be possessed and knocked around for, for a period of time. Um, so I would say on a professional side, as, as I look back, I, I think that's probably something in which I take a fair amount of pride in as I made that transition that you mentioned from radio to TV first and then from TV play-by-play to TV analyst that you know those were three different roles that I had over 24 years. Which one did you like best? Which one you felt oh, most comfortable or, or enjoyed the most? I will tell you without a moment's hesitation, what I enjoyed the most was the radio play-by-play of that era because there just wasn't much television. And that was the link to the game and the responsibility. Television play-by-play is different because folks are watching and sometimes they don't even want to listen to the announcers and they just turn it down, you know, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I think the demand, and particularly in an era unlike today, where everything seems to be on television, um, so there it was trying to paint that complete picture. Whereas on the television side, you're largely just trying to stay out of the way mm-hmm. and not overstate the obvious and allow the game to to play for itself, and then sort of guide it along uh, and allowing that that analyst to come in. I guess I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, when. I guess when you're doing a radio call, you know, whatever audience you have is actually hanging on your every word. Sure. You know, prob- probably more so than a, a visual medium like television. Like, like you said, they might even have the sound turned down or it just might be on in the background or, you know, but if someone's tuning into the radio, I mean, they're in, I, I know it because I, I, when I listen to your broadcast or if I listen to an Indians game on the radio, you know, listening to Tom Hamilton or something, I'm, I'm you know, you're kind of hanging on every, you kind of have more of an, a captive, I don't say captive audience, but a more captivated yeah. audience probably well the, the russian listeners were a captured audience right <laughs> so um well that was fun though going back and uh yeah. as i said we do, we don't have every call from every game but we've got quite a bit from that inaugural season in particular and we'll continue to to weave that into this this program we want to get other people that have that history we talked at the top about dr pete edwards and and his uh, interest and and i think we hope certainly uh, over time that we're going to be able to not only talk about the current uh, version of the black and gold, but also build in that history uh, for those like you and I were th- that were there and relive it. And for those who weren't part of the game yet, in many cases, like my, my own children, not all even born when the league came into being. Because <laughs> today's teenagers, they know MLS in the same way they know the NFL or Major League Baseball, the NBA, right? It's just another sport. Uh, and mm-hmm. not understanding how not that long ago it, there wasn't even a league. It didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, let me see, how old was I? I was 21 years old when when MLS launched. That was really kind of my first exposure to outdoor soccer apart from World Cups, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy and or neat to think that there are people that have grown up and this has just been part of the landscape their entire lives. I'm with you. I'm with you. 
Well, I think we got to put a wrap on this one. Mr. Steve-O, Dwight and Cirque talking black and gold since 1996. Uh, great to get down memory lane and looking forward to having the next show. Yeah, yeah, this was fun.